Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Suffering is part of the human condition. No one avoids it. It's inherent to being alive. We work hard, right? We take charge of our thoughts. We implement strategies from science, from psychotherapy, from our connection to God and our faith to try to, as my dad would always say, get happy. And we do to a degree. We don't wallow. We don't resign ourselves to a life of utter pain and despondency, still, we will suffer. Some of us will suffer massive trauma. Others, maybe minor wounds that accumulate. Today's guests are going to help us discover ways to find redemption and healing in the midst of pain, suffering, and trauma. I'm so pleased to have these guests share with us their book and their work. And at the end of our talk, we have a special word for single women, which so many of you are on that journey of looking for your person. So you know I wanted to be sure to speak to what's on your heart in regards to pain and suffering of enduring multiple heartaches throughout our adult lives. Here's some more information about Dr. Dan Allender and Kathy Lorzel. Dr. Allender is a pioneer of a unique and innovative approach to trauma and abuse therapy. For over 30 years, the Allender theory has brought healing and transformation to hundreds of thousands of lives by bridging the story of the gospel and the stories of trauma and abuse that mark so many. After receiving his Master of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, Dan earned his PhD in counseling psychology from Michigan State University. In 2011, the Allender Center was founded by Dr. Allender and Rebecca Allender, alongside Kathy Lorzel, with the support of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology to cultivate healing and train leaders and mental health professionals to courageously engage others' stories of harm. Dan is the author of The Wounded Heart, The Healing Path, To Be Told, and God Loves Sex. And he's co-authored several books with Dr. Tremper Longman, including Intimate Allies, The Cry of the Soul, Bold Love, Bold Purpose, and most recently he co-authored Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals True Calling with Kathy Lorzel. Dan also co-hosts the Allender Center's weekly podcast with Rachel Clinton Chen, which has more than 2 million downloads. And now, here's a little bit more about Kathy Lorzel. Kathy Lorzel combines a business strategy background and a deep understanding of the cultural landscape to her roles in the Allender Center and the Seattle School. She has held previous roles in the House of Representatives on Capitol Hill, in process and change management at PwC and IBM, and in leadership development in the wilderness of Pennsylvania. Kathy joined the Seattle School as a student, and upon graduation, joined the team full-time. Kathy has served in a variety of positions, including in organizational development, event planning, and donor relations. And she played a key role in founding the Allender Center and growing its mission. She is also the co-author of Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals True Calling with Dr. Dan Allender. My interview with Dan and Kathy of Redeeming Heartache, right after this. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. 
So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. Dan and Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Karen. Good to be with you. Thank you for having us. So I really appreciate your work. We are here to talk about your new book called Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals Our True Calling. There's nothing more beautiful in the work that we do in the helping profession. And I think maybe in the work that goes on in many domains and realms than redemption, because there's not a one of us who isn't going to have some bumps and bruises or some flat out brutal valleys throughout life. But there is redemption available. And that's what your work and your book is about. So share with the listeners a little bit about how you came to decide that what you wanted to share needed to be put down in paper and really fleshed out in a way that maybe hadn't been fleshed out before. Kathy, I'll defer. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. So this material for me, uh, it started when I was a student. I started school as a student uh, with Dan getting my master's in counseling psychology in 2004 and took this class called Faith, Hope and Love. And, you know, really when I started grad school, it was this mission of realizing that so much of of our lives was happening in the shadows. Mm. And what I was learning in the churches, what I was learning just through friendships and being alive was that um, there was a deeper complexity to what it meant to be human. We had harder stories and most of us didn't know how to talk about them and how to bring them into the light and how to actually find a redemptive arc in the midst of it. And so it brought me to this crazy grad school and I (laughs) sat um, underneath Dan's teaching and just found a lot of resonance in it and thought, okay, this guy is talking about life in a way that makes sense to me. And it's starting to name aspects of my story that I haven't heard, I haven't seen other people put language to in an authentic and real way, but also a very hopeful way. And so that really began my journey into this material. And I like to joke with Dan, like really this book is like my final exam, like my final Mm -hmm. thesis paper for some of the work, um, because based off of of that class, we really started the Allender Center seven years later. And, and, and that, that put us on this trajectory because I, I, I realized this, this work and the work that we put into the book changed my life and really just had a desire for other people to have access to it as well. And for me, Karen, the privilege of being able to work with a brilliant thinker like Kathy and to open the door to this, this bridge that our suffering, uh, no matter what a person's gone through in life, be it small T or capital T trauma, not only needs to be healed, but actually is meant to be used for for not only our good, but for the good of others. And so what we wanted to do was to try and tackle how heartache is not only in the process of being healed, but also restored in a way in which it becomes part of the way we live for good uh, in our worlds, whether it's our career, our calling, our marriage, our friendships. Uh, we, We want that sense that the past is not only to be engaged, but it actually is a trajectory to engage and shape the future. Well, that's so empowering because I think, and you spoke to small T or capital T trauma, and I'd love to have you speak more to that in a moment. The idea that so often, I think it sounds like from, if I'm understanding your thoughts correctly, that In the past, people would recognize a big trauma, like someone went to war. When I was a a child, I remember my mom and dad talking about someone who had shell shock from Vietnam. We've now, we would call that PTSD. We would acknowledge, or someone who grew up 
going from 15 different foster care homes or something along those lines, we would acknowledge that trauma. But you're talking about small T traumas that perhaps people didn't even validate in their own experience, maybe tried to sweep them under the rug. Of course, as those of us in the helping profession, we know that so often, if not always, anything we try to sweep under the rug, repress, suppress is going to eventually percolate to the surface and we'll be dealing with it one way or the other. And it sounds like you want to invite people who read your book, who work with you to consider not wanting to sweep and in fact, to embrace, and maybe that's too strong a word, but maybe not to embrace their experiences so that they can honor them, how they have built into the person that they have become. And even, which I love this part, even see these experiences perhaps building into their strengths and their skill sets. Oh, well said, well said. Uh, You know, capital T trauma would be any major threat to your life. And I don't mean just physically, but including threat to your marriage, threat to your job, where there is danger that literally could just create upheaval in your life. And with that, a sense of powerlessness that we cannot change the direction of that harm. When those categories are there, we're in the middle of a capital T trauma, but small t trauma, we would view as any time there is, uh, in some sense, a failure of attunement and care or uh, containment, attachment issues, when there is a, a violation of human dignity and honor and goodness. And those happen, you know, in a world like ours, highly polarized. I mean, we are seeing so much rage as normative in our world. But those events, which we can easily just say, well, that wasn't that big of a deal, still have an effect in our body and our brain. In other words, it creates the kind of traumatic response we're used to with regard to the categories of fight and flight and freeze and fawn. And if we can understand that our body encounters this and we metabolize it, whether we're willing to address it or not, it stays in us and is going to need to be addressed. Yeah. Kathy, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think this is a really important category. And we talk about this a lot in the beginning of the book, because I think so many people dismiss their stories because Mm. they don't have big T trauma. And, and I think people who are now trying to work out in relationships, like, why can't I love better? Why can't I, you know, shift behaviors that are troubling to me? Why, why do I struggle with depression? Why do I struggle with anxiety? All of these things that, that, that we have in our current lives, all can be mapped back to little T trauma, if not big T trauma. And when we dismiss our stories because we haven't had like the big A abuse, then we actually miss a lot of the markers that can actually help us heal and help us go back. But we have to be willing to go back and rediscover some of those origin stories that feel benign to us. But like Dan said, our brains and our bodies take them in in the same way that you would large T or big A abuse. And you speak to our stories and it reminds me of narrative therapy where we're trying to look at the story we're telling ourselves. And in this case, you're you're also wanting to underscore parts of our story that we're not accessing, we're repressing, we're not open to that part of our story. We may be scared of it because it was such a traumatic time. We may be fearful that no one else can handle that part of us. And as you mentioned, those dynamics will weave their way into every relationship, certainly romantic relationships, but also friendships, family connections. It's going to be playing out in real time, whether or not we're aware of it. That's right. That's right. And that's our hope, right, is to be able to normalize some of this so that people start to say, oh, I have stories, too. And you'll notice in the book, you know, most of the stories that we talk about aren't our big T trauma stories, you know, which I have some some abuse in my background. You know, so does Dan. But those aren't the stories that we settle on in this book. We're bringing you into some of the more nuanced, subtle stories that, that have shifted something of our trajectory in this world. And, and it happens quickly. It happens at a young age. And, you know, because we're always looking around trying to figure out how to keep equilibrium. 
right? So we mm. have science and data that, that we know that children by the age of four are accurately reading the intent of their care providers and the people around them. And so they can tell if a parent is annoyed, is frustrated, it wishes that they were doing something else, is distracted, right? And those are all the benign pieces, not to mention the fact that they can tell if a parent has rage, has anger, has malicious intent towards them. A child knows all of that intuitively. It's our survival mechanism. But we're also then highly attuned and capable of shifting to be able to stay safe in our current environment. So for instance, if a child notices, okay, mom is really distracted and she's hardly ever really present, that child's wiring is going to make them want to believe that mom is still good and still safe because what's the alternative, right? Mm, mm -hmm. They can't get a new mom (laughs) and they don't have enough capacity to really, you know, be able to be like, well, mom's just having a hard day or, you know, she's, she has trauma in her background. So it's not about me. It's about her. A child can't do that. And so they take it on themselves. And they realize, oh, I, I need too much. So mm-hmm. the way I'm going to stay with equilibrium with mom is needing less. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's what we're trying to get into are those nuanced places that we oftentimes don't understand and don't look closely at because we dismiss them and they're easily dismissed. But from our perspective, those are the keys to healing and to actually living a a more whole life on this side of our trauma. Yeah. And you speak to children, which reminds me of my first work, which was after I got my master's in clinical psych, I was working in the South side Chicago with children in the child welfare system. And when you mentioned children being very protective of their parents, even in this case, parents who because of an addiction, we're not able to even continue to have them in their home. And as a young clinician, I'm 24 mm-hmm. years old, I'm going to go down and save the world, right? right. <laughs> so uh, my tendency, of course, as I bonded with these children was to have anger, which I think was a reasonable response for what they weren't receiving from their mother who was struggling with addiction, their father who was never around. And I had some great supervision from my supervisor reminding me, Karen, that anger is not going to help that child at all. Because that child, as you spoke to, that child has one mother and they will be protective of that mother. And for me to give any indication that I was angry with their mother, that's just going to be another wound that this child does not need to deal with right now. Right. And so then the question is, okay, so those children grow up Mm-hmm. And maybe they have access to care, access to to healing. You know, now they have to go back because they actually have, you know, an adult brain that can handle nuance, that can understand trauma, that can actually be, be healed and released. And now they have to go back to those stories that they had to ignore in order to stay, to survive their world and keep their parents intact whatever mm-hmm. way possible. But now they have to go back and unravel and relook at some of that. And that's very painful work, but it really is the way to move into deeper healing. So all of us have structures for survival. And when we were three or four or five or beyond, they are all reasonable in terms of it enabled us to make our way through a complex and difficult world without the resources that, as Kathy put so well, that an adult uh, will likely have. The complication is it builds patterns of response that we carry out and live in uh, with adult relationships, be it our marriage, be it our friendship, be it jobs, the structure of how we keep ourselves safe, what we do to find uh, engagement with our deepest desire for delight and honor, uh, it plays out. We usually use the word reenactment. And until we've got categories from the past, We really can't see the patterns of how we're reenacting that past out in the present because we have so many convenient categories like, oh, that's just the way I am. That's Mm -hmm. just my personality. Uh, You know, that's uh, almost reductionistic, but nonetheless, it keeps us without having to do the hard work of what we're inviting people at least to begin with. And that is, can we help you name some of what trauma has brought into your world, whether you actually think you've gone through trauma or not. 
It's so interesting. You just said survival, because that's what I was thinking. That word kept coming to mind because it doesn't have to be something that's Again, what we would assume traumatic child welfare, addictions, these kind of experiences that we would assume would have some scarring that would then lead to behavior patterns, patterns of response, as you put it. It can be a child who whose parent is preoccupied. Of course, children, they're egocentric because they're trying to survive this environment that they have no control over. So they're just going to figure out ways to survive. And then later, perhaps either like you're saying, Dan, either consider these fixed traits that they possess. That's just me. Or they might label themselves. Well, that's my pathological such and such. And then again, fixed. It cannot be changed. But you're suggesting that as we reexamine with our adult eyes and our adult sensibilities, we can have compassion for our child, uh, our child self, and and then to try to look at these patterns and think of what's serving us now in our current present day reality and what isn't. And might we be able to either one, make some adjustments or two, look at those patterns and as you're saying here in the book, redeem them. And I love that. And you talk about how to look at them as even strengths. Elaborate on that a bit. Well, one category that we ask people to consider is the archetypes of trauma leaves us feeling like orphans or strangers or widows or widowers. And those are strong words. And unfortunately, most people think of them in very concrete terms. Like I have both parents, so I can't be an orphan. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was born in this country, so I can't be a stranger or a foreigner. The reality is that this ancient wisdom from the Hebrew Bible actually points toward the reality of what it's like to live in a world that is not as we were meant to be in. Mm-hmm. So an orphan is someone who has lost protection, has lost a place within a, a familial world where there is safety and goodness. and. Uh, you know, a stranger is somebody who bears a sense of being unwanted, unacceptable in a particular community or group that they would like to fit in. And a widow is somebody who's lost love, who has known connection, intimacy, and then for some reason, there has been a death of some sort that has brought about the loss that indeed a widow or widower would experience. So if we can invite people into what that means to enter into our, as you put it well, into our childlike being, where we've been orphaned, where we have felt strange or estranged, and where we've known what it means to be a widow, as difficult as it is, those archetypes give us as Kathy put so well earlier, a narrative to begin to look at to refract our own experience through the lens of this archetype to get a better sense of where it leaves us when we are orphans, strangers, and widows. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast, and I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page, and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May. Tim at loveandlifemedia.com. Kathy, do you want to jump in there? When Dan talked about orphan, widow, stranger, 
those are the core woundings of, of our hearts. And, and it's important to both understand how those things came to be in our stories. And then it's also important to understand how those things play out in our current life. And, and so, you know, if the orphan has been taught from an early age through lots of betrayal or a sense of, of the world's not safe, no one's coming, no one's going to take care of me. You know, when you fast forward, you know, 20 or 30 years, someone who has an orphan wound is going to feel like they have to do everything for themselves. They're going to have this sense of no one's coming, no one can take care of me, no one's going to give me what I actually need. So they've done two things. One, they've over, over relied on themselves to create safety, to create goodness, to take care of their needs. And in some ways, they've become very suspicious of other people's care of them. Because what they've learned is that the care that was available to them always had a cost or some something that was going to kind of come out from nowhere and it made them vulnerable to harm. So it's very difficult for an orphan to trust, to rest, and to play. Because all of those things mean that you have some sort of, of belief that, that there's more than just what you can provide for your own heart. And I think it's important because a lot of times people don't remember the stories of their orphan trauma until they start to access how that's playing out in their current world. <laughs> right. So, you know, when my husband, my husband knows my orphan really well, because it plays out all over our marriage, you know, I'll come down and in the middle of the day and there are dishes in the sink. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm the only one who is going to pay attention to the dishes. So I guess I have to do them. He's like, please go back upstairs because I was about to get to these, but I still have two more hours where you're supposed to be working. <laughs> so I need you to back off and go back upstairs with your orphan heart and know I'm going to take care of this so that, you know, and, and it's, and it's subtle, but I think it can, it has a lot of ramifications in terms of how we operate in the world. And it really keeps us separate from the love and the connection that we deeply desire. But you can't fix how that plays out without understanding, you know, I'm operating out of a system that was created a long time ago. And, and I have to go back to those original wounds so that I can then make different choices, have care and tenderness for the part of me that is always hypervigilant, always panicking, that I'm the only one who's going to see it. And if I don't do something about it, it's not going to get done. And, and that's the hypervigilance that's come, that comes from an orphan. And I was struck from the book, and I don't know if I'm going to quote this exactly because I was listening to the book, but you said something along the lines of, for the orphan, care never feels like care. Yeah. And it's this, I want to be cared for, but the caring that has been attempted has never sufficed or mm -hmm. was never maybe there wasn't an attempt. And so there's this isolation that occurs that then can be self-fulfilling because mm -hmm. of course the orphan is assuming and projecting this assumption that the care will never come and probably then unknowingly emanating some energy of you're not going to care for me. And then people go, Oh, that person's a little prickly. I don't want to get too close. <laughs> right. So we, we get in these, yeah. in, unfortunately, these self-fulfilling prophecies by virtue of mm -hmm. our expectations and our behavior. Absolutely. Well, if you're always suspicious, then that's a setup for anyone else in your system. Cause you know, we're human beings and we're going to fail one another. And, and so if an orphan is already predisposed to believe that there's going to be failure, there's going to be betrayal, they're looking for that around every corner. And right. like you said, in some ways that ends up creating the very thing that they're fearful of. It's a tough bind. Yeah. And you, you brought up several binds throughout. And I think it was, it was so enlightening to see them so eloquently expressed in the book and from reading it, that it's not just that there's an orphan or a widow or a stranger. We can all embody elements of this by virtue of the experiences we've endured. Absolutely. Yeah, I just don't think there's any question that they really do all work tragically together. 
uh, and the orphan feels estranged. Uh, that sense of isolation is part of what a stranger feels with mm-hmm. regard to not fitting in. Mm-hmm. And often the orphan has worked really hard to fit in, yet that part of us that knows that we're just not cool enough, we're just mm-hmm. not bright enough to fit into the so-called inner crowd leaves us either with that I like, I don't care. I don't give a damn. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to really be part of your club at all. Or the incredible pressure to somehow do what's required to finally make entry uh, into that social world that has been uh, left to us uh, as one that we will never deserve to be part. So I, I love the way you put it, Karen, that they're so interactive. They intend and often intensify one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you spoke to the orphan and then also the stranger there, yeah, there was overlap there. And I thought, goodness, haven't we all felt some degree of that? And in some of the stories that you shared also, some were profound. And I was struck by the work that you do in your, in your institute and in with the trainings that people can really finally honor trauma that they didn't even recognized. They were orphaned. They were the stranger. They were widowed. They had no idea. And it just how validating and just so healing for the process of the honoring of that experience in and of itself. Yeah. So many of the people who come in to do certificates with us are coming because they want to help other people. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. We, we love that. And we need more healers in the world. But oftentimes like, well, I'll bring this one story that's, you know, pretty benign. And, you know, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. You know, I've worked with so many other difficult story, you know, it, with other folks, big A abuse, big T trauma. And then they come to us with these stories. And by the end, we're all undone because the trauma is so thick and the patterns are so heartbreaking and the ramifications of it are so deep into their psyches that, that they're shocked and they're realizing, oh, I've, I've underestimated the degree of impact of trauma in my life. And what we say at the Allender Center is you can't take anyone further than you've gone yourself. <laughs> yes, so we I always start with other people's stories. Yes. Yeah. That's something I was taught in my clinical training for my master's in clinical psych. And it always stuck with me. It speaks to the necessity, which healers and clinicians, we oftentimes, we know that we need to do our own work, but sometimes we're caught up in the day to day and we really limit our ability to move through and walk through people's journey if we haven't been willing to dig ourselves. You know, that reminds me of, I think her name was Sally. Yeah. Would you mind sharing that story? Because I think it really speaks to exactly what you talked about. She came with every intention to want to be supportive and healing. And yet, unfortunately, she had built a wall around herself that was really alienating herself from initially, at least uh, other members in the, in the process. Yeah, the Sally story is just is one of my favorite parts of the book, mostly because it really highlights the work that we do in the Allender Center with this, our story workshops. And so, you know, the, the idea of Sally is that she's coming into this group, you know, with a very specific style of relating where she is kind of unassuming, really wants to be helpful, is like really caring, but is kind of but people don't really know how to receive her because she doesn't really feel solid. Mm -hmm. And then you start getting into her story and the story she brings is very different than the story that ends up coming out as you do the work. And the story is, is around kind of how she got bullied as a kid in elementary school, but it's, but as you unpack it, it's about the mockery and the setup of a mother who is incredibly jealous of her life force that she brought into the house and the fact that she was deeply triangulated by a father who found life in his daughter versus life in his marriage. And and she was hated for that. She was seduced by her father to, to bring life into his dead world. And then it set her up for envy with her mother and her mother made her pay. And, and again, like, so, so Sally's journey, and again, just so everyone knows, Sally's a fictitious character. <laughs> Sally's mm-hmm. not a real person, but she, but, and yet she is, you know, so if you're mm-hmm. thinking that we're talking about you, we're not, mm-hmm. and we are. <laughs> But, you know, Sally, then part of her bind is that for her to to actually come back alive again, she has to recognize that she actually brings life and is delightful and is worthy of being envied by her mother, if that makes sense. 
Um, but if she sees herself as just dowdy and bland and uninspired, you know, then she can't make sense of her story because her story is actually about a vivacious little girl that brought life into a dead home and her mother hated her for it. Yeah, but it's so powerful because then as you continue to weave Sally throughout the book, talking about how her ability to heal others, which was her heart, that's what she wanted to do, but she was constrained by her initial inability to explore her own woundedness and her own trauma, which of course, again, and it's all survival, which you speak to so eloquently in the book as well. We're, we're surviving <laughs> and we're children and we don't have the resources. And you even speak to the brain development at, at one point about the frontal lobe and then the limbic system and how when we're in that state of of fear based because we're going through the trauma and how we're not able to connect the two, especially when we're children where our frontal lobe is underdeveloped. Oh, it is such a setup, isn't it? You yes. It it's like we are in our most susceptible, vulnerable state, yet in many occasions, it is only up to us to see if we can survive. And mm-hmm. in that context, what we're left with is structures and patterns that feel like if we give up, we are going to die. And yet we find so often the idea that if I engage my story and it's heartache, it will kill me. Yet uh, it is unquestionably the context of engaging a sense of resurrection, a sense of newness to life that would not have been there if all we did was simply perpetuate the same patterns that thankfully allowed us to survive. But in some senses, both of you have put it, it's killing us. So what looks like death is life. What looks like life is a long, slow suffocation. Oh my goodness. I I remember another person who'd worked with you had asked one of you at one point, but if I go there, if I go to those depths, what if I never emerge? Mm -hmm. And of course it's, it's exactly what you just said, Dan. It's, it's, you have to go there in order to fully actually emerge to true life, to actual vibrant living, engaging, thriving. And yet we're so fearful because that cage we constructed did serve us for a time. It, it allowed right. us to survive. Yeah. There, there's a passage uh, in uh, Matthew chapter five, that what's called the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Mm. And there is this intersection of, will you as an orphan or as a stranger or a widow or widower, will you enter the grief and heartache, the reality of harm, and open your heart to comfort? In one sense, we know neurologically that the same pathways, if they close down to pain, also close down to some degree to joy. Mm. So it is as simple and yet so deep of a moral decision. Will I, will I tell the truth? Will I enter what I do know of the truth and let it, in some sense, roil me, uh, uh, d- disrupt me and deconstruct some of the illusions that I've operated on. Yet those illusions, thank God for, because they enabled me to get to this point of being able to actually be part of, of, of honoring them, but also giving the structure away. Yeah, it's poignant. It's profound. It feels counterintuitive when you are the person determining whether or not you want to embark upon that journey and trust that there will be that vibrant life. I feel like it's coming home to yourself too. Mm-hmm. Tru- truly being the person that you're wired to be, but life did its thing. And mm-hmm. we built up this armor that I feel it seems like it was protective and it served us, but it's also keeping us this massive barrier between us and others and true intimacy and, and truly living. I think, I think a huge piece of even the, the work that we're, we're wanting to do in, with the book and with the Allender Center is, is helping people grieve what their body has already known is true. Mm. Uh, you know, cause we, your body knows your, your, your body has the memory of the trauma and knows what's true about how you were hated or how you were set up. But now your mind has to catch up with that. And when that integration happens, when, when the truth is told, 
uh, it really does set you free. It realigns your body. And I think we're so afraid that it's going to swallow us up. But if we're courageous enough and have people around us who can help midwife us through the, 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 the movement of grief in our bodies coming together with stories that have been fragmented because they've had to be because of trauma, you know, when we go through that process, every person that, that I've worked with has come out the other side and gone, thank you. Yeah. Like this has changed my life. I'm a different person. I'm a better mother, a better spouse, a better teacher, a, a better pastor. This is serious work, but it, mm-hmm. it will change you and it will set you free. And I just, I think we're so terrified of grief and we have so little room for grief in our culture mm-hmm. that, that that's the huge gift that we're being invited to is that it's actually going to make you able to experience more joy, more delight, more goodness, and more of your calling if you actually give yourself over to something that has been perceived as scary, but your body is already living the, your reality every day. And, and, and when you don't deal with it, then the only way you can handle that is through addiction or um, dissociative behaviors or mm-hmm. overworking or overeating, like all the things that are, that keep us bound. We don't, th- those are things to keep us protected from what our body already knows. Yeah. And it's the subtitle of your book, how past suffering reveals our true calling. And that true calling may not be available to us if we're still so locked, unfortunately, based on, again, that survival mode that we've stepped into. Kathy, did we did we fully flesh out the stranger and the widow? Because I we, we kind of talked about that. And then I know we all kind of got going, which is I what I love. I love about a conversation like this. You keep going in, in different directions, but I want to make sure we did address all those if, if you felt like you'd been able to speak to each of them. Yeah, well, let, let me just, I mean, I think the only one we kind of left out was widow, but it's a great place to end because the widow is really that sense of now that you know that death is real, that there will be loss, there is suffering, you can't avoid it. Will you continue to risk to love again? Mm. Will you believe that love is still worth the risk of betrayal and powerlessness and shame and that you can't avoid that? But if you learn to grieve, if you learn that the harm isn't going to kill you, if you if you let it move through your body in the right way, then it really frees you up to take greater risks and, and move into more freedom to love. And I think that's the point of all of it. Mm. You know, we're, we, we need more love. We need to be able to receive love and to give love. And our families need that. Our marriages need that. Our world needs that. And that can happen if we learn to tend to the reality of what it means to be human. And part of what it means to be human is to suffer. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a way through it that can actually bring joy and, and, and goodness to both you and the world around you. I love that we're touching on this specifically because many of my listeners, they found me through my work, which involves a lot of dating, relationship, marriage, parenting stuff, but certainly there's a lot of single women who have come into my community. And so that piece about risking Having known a lot of losses when it comes Mm -hmm. to love, these women are probably single longer than they expected to be or hoped to be. They do fear that love is never going to happen for them. They perhaps have had so many adult romantic breakdowns that have left them quite scarred, demoralized. And so I think that widow metaphor, I think, is really going to be poignant for them and they'll resonate with that. It's so important to hear that the widow widower isn't necessarily the one who has actually had someone die. But when our dreams die, mm-hmm. when we have known disappointment at such a profound level that indeed love has left us, we have seen something of the death of our dreams. It's so important to hear that is the experience of of a suffering that often turns our heart to smaller matters because it feels like it's a less of a risk rather than tending to the good small, but also opening our hearts to the greater large. Yeah. Specifically when you think about trauma, as we wrap up, because this is really the pain point for many in my community, what sorts of words of support and hope might you offer for a woman who is, again, like I spoke to 
struggling and feeling, starting to lose hope that love is available for her because she's been widowed, as you said, Dan, not necessarily actually a widow as we understand the term, but has been widowed based on the fact that she's had multiple relationships not go in the direction she had hoped and has perhaps feeling that her heart has been kicked around a little bit more than mm-hmm. most people have. Any any thoughts for those, those individuals in particular? Well, I, the first thought that comes to mind is we need communities of attunement that don't offer quick advice, uh, don't dismiss us uh, mm. uh, summarily simply because we're hurting. We, we need people who will attend and witness our our heartache. That's what I, I understand that phrase to mean. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Can we be in a community that honors mourning in a way that invites care? So first and foremost, we are not meant to bring our stories to people who will add to the harm. So we have to have discernment, mm-hmm. some sense of higher expectations for how our lives will be engaged. I think that enables us to, whether it's with a good therapist, a good pastor, a good friend, we're finding people who can join us in our grief, but not leave us wallowing in our heartache, but helping us imagine who we are meant to become in the midst of our heartache. So I think that's the second component of attunement that invites us to dream in new ways for who we are meant to become, what we're meant to bring to this earth, and how we're to do so. That's a beautiful word. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean that I I feel I feel very taken by your description of where people are struggling. That was a lot of my story. And I think as Dan said, to find a community of compassion, but also to really do that deep work of understanding your own heart. And, you know, you don't know if you're, if you're going to find a partner, like we don't know how the story is going to end. Then the deeper question is, who are you still meant to be on this earth? And, and how are you meant to bring life and beauty and goodness to the world, regardless of of how your story plays out? And can you tend to your heart outside of a partnered relationship, both to prepare yourself for for the possibility that that may come to bear, but also that deeper sense of you have a calling on this earth to bring beauty, to create goodness, and to partner with where, you know, beauty is already happening and also where there's been destruction and beauty needs to be created. So I, I believe that we all have deep callings that that supersede where we find ourselves in the midst of our stories. And, and that work can happen at any time and needs to happen consistently. So I, I know I got a little preachy there, but I no. feel very strongly <laughs> no, no. that, you know, that there's so much that so much goodness that we're meant to bring and there are so many communities that need your heart and need what you offer. Oh, that's lovely. And it's so true. And it's that tension of being able to resonate with that truth and yet also honor that desire that, yep. you know, I always think of Adam was around for a, just a few minutes and then Eve showed up, right? I'm not sure exactly the amount of time, but <laughs> but I do believe that many of us and most of us were wired by God. It's, it's part of our deep desire to find our person and to have that deep intimate partnership mm-hmm. and, and in the longing honoring the longing. And as you both spoke to finding community that can honor that longing while also reminding us that you're not less than you're mm-hmm. not, your, your purpose is absolutely valid and vibrant. And, and, and it's also your calling is here and to be actively living and engaging in the world while also honoring your own longing for that deep yeah. intimacy. Absolutely. The level of being able to hold to this notion that every one of us suffers, and yet our suffering is never meant to be only ours. We're actually meant to not only to join our own transformation, but the privilege of being able to join others. I mean, just even the privilege of joining this podcast with you, Karen, uh, is just as a sweet gift to know that some of the suffering that Kathy and I and others have gone through actually has a chance to benefit, 
to grow not only us, but others. There's a sense in which uh, that whole old phrase, don't lose your pain. Mm. Let it be profitable. Mm. I love that. I don't think I've heard it put quite that way. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time and for your work and and your book. Again, I'll reiterate, it's Redeeming Heartache, How Past Suffering Reveals Our True Calling. It's a deep dive into a very inspired approach to my mind. It's very inspiring to truly believe that putting aside the fear of going to those deep depths of our, our woundedness and our trauma and our pain, that we can benefit from that, even though it's a very scary process of, as we've spoken to today. But I want to thank you so much for joining me. Also let the listeners know where to find you, find the book and uh, and your institute and all the, all the things you're doing. Yeah, you can find um, the book at redeemingheartachebook.com uh, and Amazon everywhere that books are sold. And then um, theallendercenter.org is where Dan and I work and do our ministry out of. Um, and then you can find both of us on Instagram and uh, we have lots of fun things happening on on all of those areas. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is don't lose your pain. Let it be profitable. I'd never heard that expression before. Dan seemed to suggest that it was something that's been around for a while. I've never heard it put that way, as I noted. And I think it's a really beautiful summation of what we've heard today. Thank you as always for joining me this week. This was a particularly deep and poignant episode touching on the power and the empowerment of being able to go deep and not be threatened by that process, although it's scary and we want to honor the fear therein. But when we do that, we can take that pain and that heartache and redeem it. If you haven't had a chance to join my newsletter list, I would love for you to be a part of that community as well. So you'll be the first to know about everything that's happening in the Love and Life family. That can be found on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. As a bonus, you'll receive your free empowered dating playbook, which is full of strategies from cognitive therapy and from psych research for leveling up your dating approach. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril.